Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals. Welcome to the Safer Chemicals Podcast. My name is Päivi Jokiniemi. As the June meeting of our Biocidal Products Committee has ended, it's now time to go through the most interesting topics that the committee discussed. The chair of the committee, Erik van der Plasche, is here to give us the highlights. So welcome, Erik. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, Pavi. Good to be here. Good to see you. Before we go into the details of the June meeting, perhaps you could briefly just explain what's the role and the main tasks of the committee. Yeah, the, the, the role of the Biocidal Products Committee, which is uh, one of the committees uh, within the agency, is to uh, adopt opinions on different processes within the Biocidal Products Regulation. And the most important okay. ones in that respect is the active substance approval process and union authorizations, where we adopt opinions on whether an active substance can be approved or whether an authorization for a biocidal product can be granted. This opinion is forwarded to the uh, European Commission and they have to take a decision in the end on uh, yeah, what happens in these both of these uh, situations. And almost all of the member states are represented within the committee. We only miss uh, Bulgaria. And when you talk about, uh, yeah, let's say other people who are present, we have stakeholders. We have, of course, the, the applicant for a dossier who is present and the, the commission is present as an, as an observer. So those, in fact, are our main tasks and is our role. Thanks, Eric. Good to have this uh, summary of your, of your tasks. In this meeting now in June, you adopted a record number of opinions. Mm -hmm. So altogether, nine opinions on union authorizations and five concerning active substance applications. What if we start with the union authorizations? Yeah, yeah maybe to, to say a few words about uh, yeah, most of them. Several we adopted quite quickly. Um, for example, for a couple of products who were based on lactic acid, Uh, one is ba one which was based on uh, paracetic acid, um, where that is quite, let's say, becoming quite normal. That uh, for biocidal products, which we have already seen uh, several times before, similar applications, similar uses, similar use patterns, we are able to adopt these opinions quite uh, quite quick. So. That's, I must say, a good thing to see that uh, we're starting to become more and more efficient when it comes to uh, union authorization. We had for the first time uh, two uh, biocidal products which are based on limes. Um, never seen that before for product type 2 and 3. These are used as disinfectants. Um, and these are bulk uh, products. For example, they're used to disinfect uh, sewage sludge. They're used to disinfect uh, manure in farms. Uh, were approved or were authorized or a proposal to authorize. Um, but yeah, the first time we saw those and uh, these went, uh, these went through. Uh, we had one union authorization based on chlorine, chlorine gas, which is used to disinfect swimming pools and uh, drinking water. We saw a similar application already before, but then we couldn't come to an, uh, let's say, an agreement on the disinfection for uh, for swimming pools. But this time we could, as now there was a complete data package when it comes to uh, the efficacy. 
And I think that's very good that we, uh, let's say, propose to authorize this product, at least that it went through, uh, because this is a very important uh, application, as you may know, in, uh, yeah, in swimming pool disinfection and in uh, drinking water. There was one union authorization where we proposed not to authorize the uh, Biosada product, and that is one which is based on uh, hydrogen peroxide. And it's not so much that hydrogen peroxide is an active substance which is not uh, efficacious. It doesn't work, but it was not authorized for, uh, for different reasons. And in this case, we're talking about uh, a toilet bowel uh, disinfection, where due to the, let's say, the, the application of the biocidal product, uh, measures needed to be taken to prevent uh, exposures or exposure of uh, either people who are working with it, or people are, uh, let's say, coming back or re-entry in the uh, in the toilet room, which needs to be disinfected, which can be in in hospitals uh, or wherever. Let's say the product could only be used safe for professionals if uh, a gas mask mask would be wet by uh, by professionals. And when it comes to the application of it, so you first have to apply it. Then you would need to wait for an hour. You would need to flush the toilet. Then you would need to wait another hour. And only at that point of time, people could start using the toilet again. So that was considered quite, uh, let's say, quite impractical, not very feasible to apply these kind of uh, mitigation measures. There was not, uh, let's say, a complete agreement within the committee. Uh, some said that uh, in theory, you can apply these measures. And in the end, it would be, let's say, up to the market, up to the applicant to uh, see whether, uh, yeah, whether they would still place this product on the market, whether people would buy it and implement these kind of uh, measures, which quite in the end might be quite complex. So, in fact, the question is then, can we ban a certain product simply because of uh, mitigation measures are not very comfortable for the one who's working with the product? But in the end, there was a majority to, to, yeah, to, to agree on that, uh, this, this mitigation measure is not practical. It's not feasible. And because of this reason, we cannot implement it. And then the product cannot be used in a safe way. Um, there were other reasons for, for not granting the authorization. For the first time, we saw that there is an, uh, a substance of concern. So not the active itself, but the, uh, one of the co-formulants which uh, had to be assessed and led to uh, environmental risks, which cannot be, uh, cannot be mitigated. So in the end, several reasons for, for not granting the authorization for this product based on uh, hydrogen peroxide. And that in the end, I think, which will go through and uh, the commission will take its, uh, its decision on it. Yeah, and maybe the, the, the last one, and it's a bit of a combination where I can tell a bit about, is a, uh, is a wood preservative. Again, the first time, like for the limes, the first time we had this type of product within our, within our framework, we never dealt with uh, union authorization of wood preservatives uh, applications. There are many national authorizations, but not that, that many on a, on a union basis. This one is based on uh, IPBC, that's the active substance containing uh, iodine. Um, and it's a wood preservative which is used for vacuum pressure impregnation. You, you may dip the wood uh, for professionals and non-professionals. And non-professionals, they would use it by brushing and rolling. And the issue around here was that we have what is called a single product application. 
So you can have either have a family or a single biocidal product. And in this case, it was a single product. And the issue was, uh, and we had the same for the limes, um, where you have this single product with two what is called formulation types. Maybe to explain first in simple terms, you might have a liquid or you might have a solid or you might have a gas. These are, let's say, let's call it uh, in simple terms, formulation types. And then you have a single product. In principle, it cannot be two formulation types. You cannot sell a, a liquid and a solid in one single package. So normally we would have then either two uh, biocidal products or you would go to a family and then you can split it in two parts of the family and then one would be the solid and the other one would be the liquid. Now in this case we had two formulation types but in this case it was based on the fact that you have uh, a certain concentrate which you would need to dilute before you can apply it. And that was for the wood preservative only for the vacant pressure impregnation that you would need to dilute your concentrate before you can apply it on the wood. And then a bit the theoretical, I must say, uh, question was, then can we still have these two formulation types in one single biocidal product uh, application? And in the end, we, we discussed it. We discussed quite a long time on both, uh, on both situations where we applied, uh, let's say, a kind of a principle that as long as what you place on the market is the same. So in this case, you either have the concentrate, which is placed on the market. And for the lime, you would have the powder and you would only need to dilute it in water. Then we can accept such a thing in one single biocidal product application. As long as it's efficacious, of course, as long as the risks are covered, so for, for human health and for environment, and as long as some of the, let's say, the, the characteristics in terms of physical chemical properties of the, uh, of the product are, uh, yeah, are respected, let's say. We do not like to see this kind of situations. We would prefer that in the future when companies come forward with such a kind of a product, please do it in a family. But if you don't, let's say, then look at this principle that it, at least the, uh, the what, what is placed on the market should be the same. And then it would in theory be possible in a single biocidal product application, but preferences in, in the end that you apply then uh, as a family. So that's what we had in terms of union authorization. So I said in total nine went through. One we could not adopt. We will go for a written procedure and then we assume that we can still adopt it. But uh, that was really the majority of the meeting we had over the last, uh, the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. But it really sounds like that it was a mix of familiar cases and something that was quite new that you haven't seen yeah. before. Yeah. Great. Um, if we then move on to the active substance applications. Mm. So there were five opinions this time, but they were all for one and same active substance, formic mm. acid. Yeah. Yes. So uh, you supported the use um, of this active substance for all the five product types. Yeah, we supported the use indeed uh, for uh, mostly as a disinfectant formic acid, which is a very simple uh, molecule. I guess most of us uh, even would know it uh, from their, from their, let's say, secondary school when they looked into chemistry. Um, but indeed, uh, recommended for approval for uh, PT2 to 5 and then also to be used as an in-can preservative where we had 
Yeah, we had one minority opinion, but in the end, indeed, the committee uh, considered that this substance can be approved. Um, there was one issue which might be interesting for our audience, and in fact, it's the same issue which we also had for one of the union authorization applications, and that is that the use of formic acid, and for union authorization, it was the use of uh, chlorocrisol, which is contained in, uh, in a biocidal product, might lead to uh, residues in, uh, in food, and that uh, can be the use in food processing industries, or it can be the use in uh, product type 3, for example, disinfection of stables or disinfection of, uh, of equipment by, uh, by dipping. And the issue around here is that uh, these two substances, they have been used in the past as a pesticide, but they are no longer used as a pesticide. And what then happens, and that's the same as for a biocide, when it's not defended anymore, then a so-called non-approval decision is taken by the European Commission. And for substances used as a pesticide, this means that uh, when you look at residues in food, that the so-called default maximum residue limit will apply. And the maximum residue limit, or an MRL, is uh, yeah, an important instrument in uh, guaranteeing the safety uh, of our food. And, and within biocides, we cannot derive such a value, but we need such a value when it comes to uh, substances which might lead to residues in, uh, in food. Now, I said in this case, uh, there was a non-approval under pesticides, and that means that the so-called default MRL applies. And this default MRL is very low. It's, it's uh, based on the detection limit of, an, uh, of a substance, and it's 0.01 micrograms per kilogram. What happened for chlorocrisol, and uh, we think that in future the same might apply for formic acid when we start having product authorizations, we would need to, uh, to take a look at whether this default MRL can be exceeded or not. And there is quite a, let's say, debate ongoing within the Commission, with member states, on several questions. And one of them is, uh, does this default MRL apply? And the, the answer we have so far is yes, it does. So that means that we have to take it into account when we start to authorize products. The other one is, can we not grant an authorization when such a value is exceeded? And that might seem strange because in principle an MRL value should not be exceeded. But in this case, as we work with a default, which is not based on toxicological data or on residue data we have in food, then you might argue that, uh, well, maybe we go a bit too far, let's say, if we do not grant an authorization based on the exceedance of an, of an MRL, which can be based on model calculations, uh, by the way. So... At this point of time, the, the position of the Commission would be that it goes too far to not grant an authorization uh, when this default MRL is exceeded. And that's what we saw for the chlorocrisol biocidal product union authorization application. So we will not recommend non-authorization for this use. We will proceed with this to the Commission and then in the end still the Commission would have to take a decision. And then the last thing is that, uh, well, we have that default MRL, but there might be a need, or I would say there is really a need to come up with a, let's call it then a, a real MRL, not a default one, but which uh, one which is based on, on, as I said, toxicological data and residue data, 
which might then be different from the default one. You would expect in general, for sure, for these two substances, that the, the, the MRL, which will be valid in the end, is a bit higher. And for formic acid, the complicating situation is also that formic acid does occur naturally uh, in food and feed. So we do expect that there will be an exceedance of this value. So yeah, overall, again, a, a complex issue. It doesn't hamper the approval of formic acid, but it will be relevant when product authorization start, uh, start coming in. Something to, to follow also then in the future. Yeah, for sure, yes. for applicants who are interested in mm -hmm. products for formic acid. Yes. Maybe in one of the coming episodes we will be talking about this again then. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> and then this time you also had several requests from the European Commission. Mm -hmm. One of these was about the availability and suitability of alternatives to hexafluoron for termite control. Mm -hmm. And this before the renewal of approval process for the substance can start. We discussed it already at uh, the last meeting, uh, a draft opinion, and now we had the revised one, where uh, this opinion was uh, prepared by the Greek authorities. And now we, we managed to approve uh, or adopt this, uh, this opinion. And its background is, uh, is the following, that uh, well, hexafluoron is coming up for renewal. It's a substance which is meeting the uh, exclusion criteria. So it's meeting the PBT criteria. It's even a very persistent and very bioaccumulative uh, substance. So that means that in principle, it cannot be uh, renewed unless one of the conditions for derogation is, uh, is met. And it's used as an insecticide for indeed for termite control. And termites are, are yeah, are, let's say nasty animals. Uh, they're not in the, the where we live in, in Finland, but uh, they are for sure causing a lot of issues in the southern part of Europe, but also in uh, overseas areas. We've been talking about France, but also, for example, the, the Canary Islands uh, from Spain. So we had some information even from uh, termite control uh, in, uh, in the Canary Islands, which was quite relevant for our, for our discussions and uh, this opinion. And the reason why we are looking at uh, alternatives for, for uh, hexafluoron or for this case, where it's meeting exclusion, is that uh, there is this idea that we might speed up the renewal of such a substance, which is meeting the exclusion criteria, by looking at alternatives. Because if there are alternatives for all of the uses for which the substance is applied, then the commission, and this is in this Mr. Standing Committee, would be able to conclude that as there are alternatives, we can uh, ban the, uh, the active substance. And that would mean that you do not need to work when it comes to uh, the, the risk assessment, uh, doing an assessment of the ED properties, which has not been done for hexafluoron. So it's an idea to speed up the process, which would then in fact only work when there are uh, alternatives for all of the users. And this is the second time we do this. We did this also for the borates, and now we do it for hexafluoron. Uh, like for the borates, uh, also for hexafluoron, we could not conclude that we have alternatives for all the different uh, the different uses. You have tropical termites and you have uh, subterranean termites. So these are uh, you see them in the southern part of Europe. And the tropical, of course, you see in the overseas areas from France. 
And for both cases, hexafluoron uh, is used. And there are indeed alternatives. Many of them are not suitable, but one of them was suitable, and that is a substance which is called diflubenzuron. But diflubenzuron is only a suitable alternative when it comes to the subterranean uh, termites. It's a substance which is already uh, proved and authorized, and it's not authorized for tropical termites. It might be in the future, let's say there is even, there is in fact no information. Um, but that's the reason why we, yeah, we cannot conclude that we have alternatives for the full use pattern for, for hexafluoron. And we discussed a bit also whether diflubenzuron is better or is not better than hexafluoron. There was a different views around the table. There were, let's say, there was information that there were certain disadvantages when it comes to using diflubenzuron. That in the end is not so relevant for this question. We really had to answer the question whether there are suitable alternatives. And as I said, there are only for, for one of these uh, species, there are there is this definitely benzron alternative. So it will now go to the commission and they would have to, to see what to do with this, uh, with this opinion. But does it mean then that, that there could be a ban for one of these species, so to say? but then that the use could continue for, yeah, that, for the other. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. And that's something indeed we discussed that can it then be in the end that you would ban indeed hexafluoron for uh, subterranean termites and, and not for tropical uh, termite control. It was a conclusion which was already drawn by some of the member states. Although there were also some who were saying, well, we also have situations where both the tropical termite and the subterranean termite is uh, is there and then if you start to ban then it only for the subterranean uh, uh, termite you would need in fact two biocides to combat this pest mm -hmm. and that's why I think it was France who was arguing well we would think it would still be better to have it for both species than on the market but that's then more uh, yeah, a regulatory uh, discussion and conclusion so that really needs to be taken Mm -hmm. at the standing committee level. But uh, yeah, in that sense, indeed, I'm not uh, sure or convinced whether indeed this will lead to a ban of the uh, of one of the one of the uh, species. Okay, all right. Um, you also had another um, request from the Commission, and that was about formaldehyde releasers mm -hmm. and endocrine disrupting. Yeah. Um, what could you tell about this discussion? Yeah, this is a well, an opinion request we received quite some time ago from the European Commission. And these were active substances where there was already an opinion adopted by us. But then the ED criteria started to uh, enter into force, enter into application. And uh, these opinions came back where we had to assess the, uh, the ED properties of these, uh, of these active substances. And in this case, indeed, it, uh, we're dealing with formaldehyde releasers. Uh, there are many within our program. And in this case, we dealt with two. Most simple is to use the abbreviations, MBO and HPT. And we have nine opinions uh, where we, uh, yeah, where this has to be done, let's say. And the uh, evaluating CA in this case, it was, uh, it's Austria who performed the uh, ED assessment. 
And it's quite relevant because uh, all formaldehyde releases and formaldehyde itself, because you're looking at formaldehyde, in fact, you're not so much looking at uh, at the releaser. These will be impacted, let's say, by this decision. If you take a decision like this for, for MBO and HPT, the same decision can be taken for the whole class of uh, the whole group. In fact, we cannot conclude that uh, formaldehyde meets the criteria in a sense that it's very difficult to to test. Maybe that's the most simple way to say it. Uh, there are substances where there are technical challenges to to test whether the substance is meeting the criteria. In fact, it, it's doing uh, yeah whether the, the test would be feasible to to carry out. And in this case, for formaldehyde, uh, there are really technical challenges to perform such a test. And the uh, yeah the working groups, the experts on on human health and environment concluded that uh, there are let's say challenges which uh, are very difficult at this point of time to overcome. We will not ask at this point of time to ask for further information. Let's then conclude that at this point of time we cannot conclude that formaldehyde is meeting the criteria or not. Then that's the way uh, yeah the, the dossier would have to proceed. And of course, formaldehyde releases are already meeting the exclusion criteria. So in that sense, there is some regulatory impact, but it it, it will not change the the exclusion criterion. There was one interesting debate we had, and that came from a proposal from Sweden, who said, well, we do not know where it meets the ED criteria. In theory, we might be able to, to do some further testing, even though we realize that there are these, these, uh, these challenges. Would it then not be better to impose certain uh, conditions on the, uh, on the approval to minimize exposure as much as possible? Over there, there were, yeah, there were quite some different views again around the table. Uh, the majority having not, uh, having no sympathy, in fact, for such a measure. Uh, most members said, well, uh, exclusion, that's a reason for not, uh, for, for minimizing exposure as much as possible. But the fact that we cannot conclude, even though it's a very important property, of course, it's one of the uh, exclusion properties. Um, we would not go as far to minimize exposure, which would mean you would need to work in closed systems, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And there might also be situations where a substance is not meeting exclusion, but simply because of its properties, highly reactive substances, for example, would we then also impose certain such a strict condition? Goes a bit too far, according to the majority. But it, I think it was an interesting point which was raised by by Sweden and. I guess, again, it's not the last time that we will discuss it or where it would not become a topic which will be discussed at the uh, at the standing committee level because it's also a bit of a, let's say, a regulatory issue, a policy issue. Uh, but to come back, uh, no conclusion on ED properties mm-hmm. and it will be uh, having an effect on uh, yeah the whole class of substances. Okay, uh, important, important opinion yeah. from that point of view. Yeah. Um, As the last topic, I thought maybe we could just have a short discussion about the work program Mm -hmm. and what's happening with that. That was also one of your agenda points. What would you like to mention about this? Yeah, we had, had let's say, the usual uh, information provided to to the member states about uh, the work program. So the workload for, for this year and a bit looking into next year. Um, where we will end up probably with the, 
Yeah, a bit the same number of opinions like we had uh, the year before for active substances, very similar. For union authorization, we go a bit up. And we agreed on a revised working procedure for union authorization applications. Um, we have a, several new tools which we are using, interact and interact collaborations, let's say. Maybe a bit technical, but uh, important for the industry to know. So these working procedures are now revised and will also be uh, soon published on the uh, on the website of the of the committee um, and then also another working procedure we agreed upon and that's related to the uh, linguistic review of uh, summary of product characteristics of the SPC and that might all sound a bit uh, technical but uh, it's an important document which comes out of the union authorization process uh, member states are checking the SPC, which needs to be translated in all languages of the of the EU. So we've set up a, a working procedure, and it has been revised, and uh, that will also be soon published on uh, on the agency website. And maybe the last one, uh, which might be relevant for our audience, is that we are looking at ways to always we look at ways, in fact, to, to make the whole process more effective and more efficient. And we started to, to look at the role of the applicant. So the one who's uh, submitting uh, the dossier for union authorization for or for active substance approval. Yeah, we had a, a document for discussion from the agency looking at ways on how to, to, to simplify and make it more effective and efficient. Um, which part, uh, yeah, already some debate uh, at the committee uh, from stakeholders, but also from member states. So we put that up for a written uh, consultation. It was not for agreement. It was just for discussion. And that will for sure come back uh, the next meeting uh, when we are, yeah, uh, again, the, looking at the role of the applicant uh, within the peer review process. Thanks, Eric. I think we have covered the main points of the meeting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking time after a was it two quite intense weeks of, yeah. of, of meetings? Now it's time for a summer break, as you mentioned uh, in the beginning. But then we will be back again um, having next highlights mm. in September. Okay. Thank Great. you, Pivy. And if you want to go back and listen to our earlier episode uh, on the Biocidal Products Committee or listen to our other podcasts, you can find them on your favorite podcast channel. Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals.